Today is Palm Sunday as we move our way to Easter and we have a, uh, a, a printed call to worship that I invite you to share in to kind of lead us into this day. The story of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem tells us that after he celebrated arrival into the city, he went into the temple and looked around at everything. As we gather here for worship today, may it be with the sense that Jesus has walked into this place and is looking around. May our eyes be open to see him. May our hearts be ready to be seen by him. May our worship be worthy of his presence. And may we be transformed so that we see the world through his eyes. Amen. Will you join me in a moment of prayer? We come together, gracious God, this morning as believers and maybe even skeptics to, re to remember the drama of Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem. We can get so caught up in this story and in the excitement of a parade of people entering the holy city on that day so long ago, waving palm branches and shouting, Hosanna and missing, we might even miss the deeper meaning of the story. So awaken our hearts today and our minds so that we will hear as those who are eager to hear a word from God. And above all, let, let it help us to look past the surface events to see Jesus, the one who gave his life, his all for us. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever rubbed elbows with somebody uh, important, maybe a celebrity, maybe a famous person? I remember being in the airport in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, one evening about 1972. I was returning to Asbury College after having just gotten off a flight from Pittsburgh, and the airport was a little crowded, and while headed for my luggage, I found myself standing next to an older gentleman that looked very familiar, but in that moment, I couldn't place him. A few moments later, he was gone, and then it dawned on me who he was. It was Adolph Rupp, who was perhaps the most well-known coach in Kentucky basketball history, one of the most successful coaches in the history of all college basketball. I didn't know if I could tell that story until late last night when the Wildcats won, in case you were watching that Notre Dame-Kentucky game last night. But you know, you can't live in Kentucky for long, and Jan and I lived there about eight years while going to school, but you can't live in Kentucky for any length of time without being a basketball fan. It goes with the territory, and being a 22-year-old basketball player at the time and standing next to Adolph Rupp might not sound you know, like a big deal to anyone here today, but it was for me. When I first saw him, I knew instinctively that he was an important person. He just had that aura about him. There was something about him that made him stand out from the crowd. Well, our scripture reading from this, uh, for this morning comes from the gospel according to St. Mark. And here we see a familiar thing happening, only on a much more significant scale. Some of the people in Jerusalem instinctively knew that Jesus was an important person. So important that they gave him their praise. But truly, they did not have a clue who they were really dealing with or the prophetic nature of his coming into the city. I invite you to hear the story that Mark tells. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead 
Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it, and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing, untying that colt? They said that Jesus had told them... uh, They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him. Some others spread leafy branches they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God! Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David! Praise God in highest heaven! So Jesus came to Jerusalem and he went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon and then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. The next morning as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if if he could find any figs, but there was only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. When they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people who were buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. Now, I want to focus our attention this morning on three significant elements of this story. Typically, on Palm Sunday, churches talk mostly about the parade and the palm branches as Jesus rides into the city, but there are two other important events that have prophetic significance and even seem a little odd in the context of the joyous parade scene. But in each of these events... Jesus is introducing himself to the people of Jerusalem. The first prophetic event is the triumphal entry. And what we discover is that Jesus takes the initiative in preparing his entry into Jerusalem. His instructions are very precise, and each is significant. The disciples are to go get a colt that has not been ridden before. You see, it was not customary for pilgrims coming to the temple to ride. Generally, people would have walked to get there. But the Old Testament prophet Zechariah said, Rejoice, O people of Zion, rejoice, or shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey's colt. And Jesus had this scripture in mind. He is the king. The people are jubilant, and he will enter the city on a note of triumph as he rides on a donkey. Now, the Roman Christians to whom Mark is writing his gospel were familiar with Caesar riding into the city on a a prancing horse when he returned from war. He was a conquering hero. He brought warriors and slaves that he had conquered. He brought lots of loot with him back to Rome. 
But Jesus, riding on a young donkey, is significant as it meets the ancient provision that an animal devoted to sacred purpose must be one that has not yet been put to ordinary use. But even more so, it symbolizes a king who comes in dignity and peace and humility, not pride. And at this time, only Jesus knows the messianic significance of his entry. Only later would it be seen for what it was. Despite the respect of the people, there seems to be little awareness that the actual arrival of God's kingdom is now upon them. And that it is actually drawn from the person of Jesus himself. In many ways, Jesus' actions on this triumphal entry into Jerusalem are hidden. For example, pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem all the time, in and out. And to see people gathering around Jesus was probably no big deal to the authorities. To them, he was just another pilgrim coming to the city, which may explain why Jesus enters to such great praise and then the people all just kind of walk away. This whole event was not significant enough to alarm or even attract the attention of those in power. Certainly the authorities would be concerned if they thought a potential king was coming to town because it would create political instability. But Jesus enters the enters this city with a group of pilgrims and then the folks just quickly disperse. And though the pilgrims who lined the streets were hoping that Jesus would be the Messiah who would save them from the Romans, they certainly are not thinking of his reign as Messiah in, terms, in the same terms that Jesus was. Now the second prophetic event in Je is Jesus' encounter with this fig tree. If we take verses 12 through 14 by themselves, they are somewhat difficult to understand, but if we place them in the context of the larger story, the story of the fig tree becomes a little clearer. When we read that Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat of this, your fruit again, the traditional teaching that seems to have evolved over the years is that Jesus is cursing the fig tree because it's not bearing fruit, but take a closer look. He never curses the tree at all. Those are the words of the apostle Peter, not the words of Jesus. And Peter was the one who helped Mark to write his gospel. Jesus states that no one's ever going to eat the fruit of the tree. But before we go deeper into the meaning of the story, I want you to notice the one, the only one of Jesus' inner circle of disciples that's mentioned in the story, and it's Peter. The impetuous disciple we've been talking about for several weeks now, who was usually more likely to speak than he was to listen, to always act in haste, not always in tune with the depth of understanding that Jesus was trying to convey. And again, as we've seen over the past several weeks, Peter doesn't disappoint us here again. In verses 20 through 21, tell us the next morning as they passed by the fig tree Jesus had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered that Jesus had said to the tree in the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. But what Jesus was really doing here is a symbolic act that makes a prophetic statement. Similar to symbolic actions of some of the Old Testament prophets who used symbolism to illustrate what God was doing either for or against the nation of Israel. So here Jesus is doing the same kind of thing. This event has meaning beyond its face value. For example, uh, in Isaiah chapter 20 we read, The Lord told Isaiah, Take off the burlap you've been wearing and remove your sandals. And Isaiah did as he was told and he walked around naked and barefoot. 
Then the Lord said, my servant Isaiah has been walking around naked and barefoot for the past three years. This is a sign, a symbol of the terrible troubles I will bring upon Egypt and Ethiopia. You see, Isaiah is not just going barefoot for no reason. His being without shoes was a prophetic sign. To all those who would see him in the same way, Jesus, in his action with the fig tree, is showing what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus and his followers left Jerusalem after the parade that day and stayed the night in Bethany, likely with close friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The next day, they leave Bethany, come back to the city of Jerusalem where Jesus will claim his lordship once and for all. Most likely, the fig tree was found in the vicinity of the Mount of Olives, which was on the way. And on the protected side of the Mount of Olives, fig trees can be seen in leaf many times around the end of March or early April. Early green figs will appear often before the leaves, but they don't taste very good and people don't eat them. They don't ripen until June. But looking at the tree, Jesus sees mature leaves and the promise of early fruit. However, he knows there will be no fruit. And yes, Jesus is hungry, but his action, like the action of entering Jerusalem and the action of clearing the temple, which we'll talk about in a moment, point to a greater and deeper meaning of what will happen to Jerusalem and to the entire nation of Israel and to the temple itself. And the prophets frequently spoke of the fig tree as referring to Israel's status before God, representing the fruit of spiritual fulfillment based on Israel's promise to be God's chosen people. But the figs also represented Israel's unfaithfulness to the covenant and how they have, so many of the promises of God have gone unfulfilled. Jeremiah 8.13 declares, I will surely consume them. There will be no more harvests of figs and grapes. Their fruit trees will all die. Whatever I gave them will soon be gone. I, the Lord, have spoken." You see, Israel had been chosen as God's people and blessed beyond measure, but they have not lived up to their potential. And the destruction of the fig tree is associated with judgment. The Old Testament prophet Hosea tells us, I will destroy their grapevines and fig trees, things she claims her lovers gave her. I will let them grow into tangled thickets where only wild animals will eat the fruit. So you see, here in the context, the fig tree symbolizes Israel in Jesus' day. And what happens to the tree, it withers, is the fate of what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Now I want to stress that for Jesus, the primary meaning here is not hunger. And it's not disappointment related to the tree or the figs themselves. He is using this occasion to make a, a profound prophetic statement. So as the action taken against the fig tree is primarily pointing to the pretense of health, not the lack of fruit. And it's pointing out that Israel's hypocrisy is about failing to produce what was promised. Jesus is making the point that the leaves are a poor substitute for fruit. The religious community in Israel had style, but it had no substance. They had a lot of empty rituals and meaningless symbols, and because of their unfaithfulness, they would eventually be given over to the Romans, and they would suffer greatly under the Roman Empire. Now, the third prophetic event in this story is Jesus inspecting the temple. And the point is that Jesus is Lord of the temple, 
who must inspect its premises to determine whether the purpose intended by God is really being fulfilled. Jesus would proceed no further than what was called the court of men or the court of the Gentiles. And his looking around, his surveying the situation provides him with grounds for action. In verses 15 through 17, we see Jesus enter into the temple, which he surveyed the day before. And we see him entering the temple this day in the context now of being the Messiah. Remember, the action in the temple is a parallel action to his riding into Jerusalem and the action taken against the fig tree. He now enters the temple and he begins to clean it out. But Jesus is not just cleaning out the temple because people are misusing it. More importantly, he's cleaning out the temple as a prophetic sign that the temple will cease to function. Why? Because in a short time, Jesus will die. And then he will be resurrected to life. And Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross is one that is effective for all time, past, present, and future. There will no longer be a need for the sacrifices that had been made in the temple anymore. Now generally, we in the modern day church talk about the sacred use of a place set aside for worship and we, we hear that Jesus kicked people out because they were buying and selling in this place of worship and that's all true. However, let's be careful how we apply these verses. The, the place in the temple where, where all this selling and is occurring is the area where the Gentiles came to worship. These were people who believed in God, but they were of, not of Jewish heritage. So this part of the temple was known as the court of men or the court of the Gentiles, and because merchants were selling and exchanging money there, there was no place for those Gentiles to worship, simply because all the space reserved for them was being taken up by these merchants. It would be equivalent Kind of to, to us taking out all of the seats or most of the seats in here and setting up this room as a place to do business on Sunday morning instead of worship. Furthermore, these merchants offered ser services that were in fact needed by the pilgrims coming to, to the temple. Most people traveled a long distance and would come. Uh, it was a great difficulty uh, to bring a sacrificial animal with them. So when they arrived at the temple, they could buy the sacrifice there. So these merchants saw a good thing, and apparently they were overcharging at a phenomenal rate for this convenience. And none of this made Jesus happy because these people were preventing those who were coming to worship from worshiping properly because of their selfish acts. But still, this is not the primary meaning of these verses. There's an even deeper significance. If we look at the church around the world today and think about who it is that follows Jesus. The vast majority are not of Jewish heritage, but are in fact Gentiles. So Jesus cleaning out the temple, and specifically the court of the Gentiles, is a, has a two-pronged prophetic symbol. First, by Jesus' actions on the cross, sacrifices in the temple would no longer be needed. He was the lamb. He was the lamb of God, sacrificed for the sins of all humankind. But secondly, the followers of Jesus at this point are almost exclusively Jewish. But within a few centuries, the followers of Jesus will be predominantly Gentile. And as Jesus cleans out the temple, he is prophetically making room for you and for me. 
the greater point that Jesus is making with his profound actions is that, that he's shedding light on God's eternal plan for all of us. Jesus sums up his point at the end of the passage. He says that evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, they, as they passed the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything, and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you are praying, first forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Now the disciples are pretty impressed that this fig tree has completely withered. And when they point it out to Jesus, he ignores their excitement. Instead, he points away from the physical action to a spiritual action. He has already pointed out what he will do. Now he points out what he's going to do, in this, uh, what he wants to see happen is a spiritual action called faith and prayer. These two things always go hand in hand. There is no effective prayer without faith, and there is no faith, no real faith without prayer. And Jesus has come to be the Messiah. His actions